Yay old man. Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay, or Ma, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And this was kind of a weird week. There was only one cinematic film that I wanted to watch this week, because basically there was only one cinematic film released this week, The Batman. And I'd already seen the other small release in a previous screening, Ali and Ava, so I only had one film to watch at the cinema, and The Batman just completely took over all the cinematic landscape in all the cinemas I could get to. There were no less than four midnight screenings of The Batman in my local Odeon on Friday night, or rather Thursday night into Friday morning, so yeah... I didn't want to watch the Batman on the first day. I didn't want the crowds. And since there was a preview screening on Tuesday of the Kosovan film Hive, which got longlisted for the International Feature Oscar, I thought, okay, let's go out on Tuesday to watch the Batman and then this Kosovan film Hive. So I had several days where I usually would go to the cinema which I wasn't going to the cinema, which gave me a brilliant opportunity to catch up with a lot of the films I need to pirate in order to include them in my Oscar deliberations, because they're released either too close to the Oscars or after the Oscars. So I've watched some like eight or nine films, which I feel the need to tick off my list through extra legal means. And that's taken up a lot of my time. But I have found time to watch some things which have been legally released and are relevant to the Oscars. So in this episode, I will be reviewing the cinematic released films Ali and Ava, the latest film from British director Clio Barnard, the gigantic blockbuster juggernaut The Batman, the independent animation CryptoZoo, which has been released on some streaming services, as well as Sean Penn's directorial effort, Flag Day. And because I felt the need to bulk up the running list of this particular podcast, I also watched on Netflix the anime Child of Kamiari Month. So a total of five films currently legally available, which will be reviewed in this episode. And without further ado, let's get on with today's reviews. Big Screen Ali and Ava is the new film directed by Clio Barnard, who is one of those directors who the cinephile community really, really loves, particularly the British cinema establishment really really loves 
she broke out with a hybrid documentary, The Arbor, which I never got around to because it looked far too arty and pretentious. But she followed that up with The Selfish Giant, which I did not like because I thought it was poverty porn of the worst kind. And then she followed up The Selfish Giant with a film called Dark River, which again, I didn't like. But in that particular case, it was because Dark River is a slow burn film, which is building to a big revelation. And the big revelation is blatantly obvious right from the start of the film. And in my opinion, the end of Dark River is unnecessarily violent and basically comes out of nowhere. So I have not liked either of Cleo Barnard's previous two films. But I had the opportunity to watch Ali and Ava for free. There was a special members preview screening at the Odeon Cinema. So I could watch it for free and Ali and Ava has got a couple of BAFTA nominations under its belt. So I thought, why not? Even if I don't like Cleo Barnard's work, I may as well watch it because the film itself looks kind of interesting and is loosely inspired by Rainer Werner Fassbinder's film from the mid-70s, Ali Fear Eats the Soul. In this film, Ali and Ava, Adil Akhtar plays Ali, a British-Pakistani man living in Bradford. He is the landlord to many houses in Bradford. He still lives surrounded by his family. I mean, his mother lives next door. His sister lives next door the other side. And he himself lives with his wife, Elora Torquia, who we last saw in Ben Wheatley's Under the Earth. But what Adil Akhtar's family does not know is that he and Elora Torquia are splitting up. They've had some difficulties in their relationship, and she has found another man and is in the process of leaving Adil Akhtar and going off with this other man. But this is something that Adil Akhtar does not want his family to know yet. So he goes around his daily business, and one of his favourite tenants is a Slovakian family. And because the father of this family works for Adil Akhtar as a builder-slash-handyman, Adil Akhtar is very close to this Slovakian family's young daughter, Sofia played by Ariana Bodorova. So it is not too uncommon that this family friend and you know, father's boss occasionally picks up young Sophia from school. And when Adil Akhtar goes one day to pick up Sophia from school, it is absolutely pouring down with rain. So Adil Akhtar offers Sophia's teacher or you know, personal in-classroom assistant Claire Rushbrook, Ava, a lift. These two people start talking and a casual friendship starts. But these are people from two different worlds. Ava, as played by Claire Rushbrook, is from an Irish immigrant family. She is a bit older than Ali, 
She is a mother four times over and a grandmother five times over. Her latest grandchild being a baby daughter that her late teen, early 20 son, Sean Thomas, has just produced. Sean Thomas, one of the kids from Clio Barnard's The Selfish Giant. So Claire Rushbrook comes from this large Irish background family, but she likes hanging out with Adil Akhtar, and gradually a bond forms between these two lonely people, but can they make a romantic relationship work when cultural pressures and familial pressures don't really want these two people to have any connection whatsoever? So can these crazy people make it work on the harsh streets of Bradford? As I said, I have not liked the Clio Barnard films I've seen previously. It strikes me that Clio Barnard is a middle-class white woman making films about dirt-poor people in Bradford and pointing at it and saying, look at the poverty, isn't it beautiful? That's kind of the attitude I have to Clio Barnard in particular, and there's a particular brand of filmmaker where I think that is appropriate. I mean, that's actually an attitude which was satirised in Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir. And I mean, in that particular case, that's an autobiographical film, so that was self-satirisation. You know, I was young and stupid, I wanted to make films about the shipyards of Sunderland when I'm a middle-class white woman. So I have not liked Clio Barnard's films. Until now, I actually really, really liked Ali and Ava. I think this is a heartfelt romance. Uh, Well, I think more than anything, I mean, what makes it work for me is it starts out as a friendship. I mean, and it's a situation where, you know, this young Pakistani British man cannot possibly be interested in me, you know, a five times grandmother who comes from the rough areas of Bradford. I'm just being silly. But gradually the friendship develops through a shared appreciation of music. And I think it's noticeable that they have very, very different musical tastes. But the more they start hanging out together in a mostly platonic way, the more their musical tastes start influencing each other. I mean, Adil Akhtar's very into rap, and eventually he's listening to Bob Dylan and actually trying to play Bob Dylan on a ukulele that somebody has given him in lieu of rent. And Claire Rushbrook becomes much more interested in the electronica and rap music that Adil Akhtar is into. And as the friendship gradually develops, the romance gradually develops. But there are issues put in the way. When Claire Rushbrook's son, Sean Thomas, sees Adil Akhtar in his mother's house, I mean, he still has a bedroom there, but more often than not, he's around his girlfriend's house. Sean Thomas, when he sees this Pakistani man in his mother's living room, he goes for him with a sword. 
Now that is problematic on many different levels. I mean, one, why does he have a sword? Two, why does he think it's appropriate to attack this man with a sword? Or at least threaten him with a sword. I mean, that is a shocking moment of prejudice and selfishness. I mean, this kid, Sean Thomas, his father only died the previous year, and he's still mourning that. I mean, yes, his parents were separated, but his father only died last year, so he's still dealing with that. And now his mother is hanging out with this Pakistani man. And it brings up what I think is one of the strongest themes of Ali and Ava, and that is prejudice and different levels and different types of prejudice. I mean, not only is it the very broad, very big white versus Asian differences, there's also more subtle differences. Like, there's a lot of discussion about the English versus the Irish. And on the other side, the Indian versus the Pakistani. And there's also economic differences. Ali comes from a more prosperous area of Bradford, which I think, after a little bit of Googling, is called Leicesterdyke. But Ava comes from the Homewood estate. And when, in this pouring rainstorm, a deal actor offers Claire Rushbrook a lift, and she says, oh, I live in Homewood, a deal actor's immediate response is, if I go into Homewood, am I going to be pelted with stones? And in fact, he is. Later in the film, Homewood is described as a very chavy area. And honestly, that isn't a term I've heard in quite some time, but... Now, this is a very rough, very working-class, very white area of Bradford, and Adil Akhtar doesn't necessarily feel safe in the Homewood estate. So there's economic differences, there's cultural differences, there's racial differences, and people do not want these people together. But they like hanging out together. They... they like sharing music together, and eventually romantic and sexual feelings do develop. And it feels so natural, it feels so appropriate. It feels good. I mean, I like seeing these two people together. I mean, these lonely people. I mean, Claire Rushbrook has very traumatic things in her past. There's stories, there's revelations which are eventually made about the abusive relationships she's had in her past. And I find it very notable that the specifics of this abusive relationship she's had in her past are very, very similar to the specifics of the abusive relationship which is referenced in Clio Barnard's last film, Dark River the details are almost exactly the same, or at least the mentality of them is exactly the same, which does make me worry a little bit about Clio Barnard's background. But anyway, Claire Rushbrook has traumas in her past through an abusive relationship. Adil Akhtar still kind of loves his wife, Alora Torquia, but an event has happened and 
the implication is that they just cannot live together anymore. It's too much for the relationship to survive. But she's still in the house, at least temporarily, she's still in the house. I mean, she's in a separate bedroom, she's living her own life, she's occasionally off with this other man, but they're still technically married. And Adil Akhtar cannot accept the fact that his marriage has failed, or, or perhaps more specifically, he cannot be seen to have a failed marriage. In his community, he cannot be seen to have a failed marriage. So, I mean, the pressures put on both of these people uh, and the issues which are brought up, their baggage, their individual baggage, is legitimate. I mean, there are concerns, there are obstacles put in the way. But they connect over the love of music, they connect, uh, both of them, over their love of this little Slovakian girl, Ariana Bodorova. Adil Akhtar is her daddy's boss and family friend, and you know, they hang out together all the time. And Claire Rushbrook is a, a classroom assistant whose sole job is to look after this little girl. And it's not exactly clear whether this little girl needs one-on-one -on -one assistance because she is Slovakian, or whether she has possibly special needs or you know, needs extra attention. It's not made clear exactly which, but Claire Rushbrook's sole job is to look after this one little girl. And both of them, in their own ways, love this little girl and connect over that as well. I mean, I think it's uh, a signal of modern life in a city like Bradford. You know, an English woman, a Pakistani, and a Slovakian girl walk into a cafe together, which does happen. And of course, one of Adil Akhtar's nieces also happens to see that interaction. So, yeah, I mean, that's a slice of life in modern Bradford, and that's basically what this is. And the central relationship between Ali and Ava is excellent. Adil Akhtar got a nomination as Best Actor at this year's BAFTAs, and this also got a nomination for Outstanding British Film. And I honestly think, in the context of the BAFTAs, in the British elements, those are probably both deserved. But yeah, I did like Ali and Ava. I mean, it surprises me that I've liked a Clio Barnard project, although her next project actually looks rather interesting. She's doing a TV adaptation of a novel called The Essex Serpent. And that novel is a fictionalised account of fossil hunting in the 19th century and is inspired by the same real-life fossil hunter who inspired the film Ammonite. But it's a completely fictionalised story as far as I can tell. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to the TV show The Essex Serpent even though apparently it's going to be on Apple+. Plus, But anyway, I like to Clio Barnard projects, and I'm not sure I ever thought I would say that. But yes, I do recommend Ali and Ava, and for me, it is a yay. So now comes the point of the show, which I'm sure a lot of you will be waiting for, my review of The Batman. I tend to record these reviews in the order in which I see them. 
and that was the case I saw Alienava first, but I also wanted to make extra sure you were paying attention to the film Ali and Ava because I do think it's worth paying attention to and could easily get overlooked in the week that the juggernaut known as The Batman came out. But regardless, I did watch it and review it. So, The Batman is the latest version, one of many, many different versions of Batman. This one is written and directed by Matt Reeves, who started out as the co-creator of the J.J. Abrams TV show Felicity. And those connections helped him get his big break in Hollywood eventually when he wrote and directed Cloverfield at what was probably the crest of the found footage boom. And since then, he has done other cinematic efforts, such as Let Me In, the ill-judged American remake of Let the Right One In. He also did a couple of the Planet of the Apes movies, and now has taken over from Ben Affleck to write and direct The Batman, after Affleck dropped out. This version of Batman is played by Robert Pattinson, who is a masked vigilante on the dirty and damned streets of Gotham City, where a mayoral election is unfolding. The incumbent being played by Rupert Penry-Jones and his opponent being a clear avatar for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez being played by Jamie Lawson, who in what is more or less the opening scene calls out the masked vigilante who needs to be in Gotham City because the police department is so corrupt. But he is actually beneficial to the city, so... Lieutenant Gordon, played by Jeffrey Wright, is perfectly okay with allowing the Batman to show up at crime scenes, and that includes the first crime scene we come across, when the mayor actually gets murdered. And left behind with the body of the mayor is a message from the Riddler, who starts taunting the Batman and taunting the Gotham City Police Department with the corruption and lies which are endemic to the damned city of Gotham. So Robert Pattinson, Bruce Wayne, investigates this serial killer, the Riddler, who will eventually be revealed to be Paul Dano, with the assistance of Lieutenant Gordon, played by Jeffrey Wright, and the occasional assistance slash antagonism of selena kyle played by zoe kravitz who never actually calls herself catwoman but nevertheless and through this heightened reality we have such characters as the mob boss carmine falcone played by john turturro his right hand man the penguin played by colin farrell an unrecognizable colin farrell and various officials of Gotham City, most of whom are corrupt, including the District Attorney Peter Sarsgaard, the Chief of Police Con O'Neill, and the Commissioner of Police Alex Ferns. And Robert Patterson is ably assisted in this by his English butler, Andy Serkis. So can the Batman stop the Riddler? Can he stop the 
murder spree which is taking place, and can the corruption at the heart of Gotham City be put down, or at least a chip away at the monumental block of corruption that is Gotham City? So there are two things which I think this version of Batman does very differently from all the other film versions of Batman that there have been, and indeed all the TV versions I've seen. The first thing is that this is definitely a vigilante, not a hero. I mean, he is described immediately as a vigilante by this mayoral candidate, Jamie Lawson. And Lieutenant Gordon, played by Jeffrey Wright, is somewhat ambivalent about needing the help of this third-party outside source, but he knows that the police department is catastrophically corrupt, so there sometimes needs to be a third person, and sometimes that third person is somebody like Zoe Kravitz, who is just as likely to commit crimes as solve them. So this is definitely a vigilante we are talking about. And the second thing, which I think is very different from most portrayals of Batman I've seen, is that this is a detective Batman. One of the earliest monikers for Batman, and one that is still used, even though it's barely relevant anymore, is the world's greatest detective, is Batman. I mean, after all, DC stands for Detective Comics. That's how it started out, as a detective story and then with the influence of other things in the golden age of comics it became much more of a superhero but in this film version those two things are definitely front and center he is a vigilante and he is a detective when robert pattinson enters this murder scene at the beginning of the film he's actually good he actually notices things which should be noted by the forensic department. He is forensically aware. He is clever enough that he actually manages to solve the riddles which are relevant and have been left for him by the Riddler. He knows how to detect. He knows what angles to take. He's good at his job. He manages to solve these problems through his intelligence and his natural ability. I mean, presumably he hasn't had much formal training in the police department. I mean, the implication is he learnt to fight from his butler, Alfred, played by Andy Serkis. But he's actually good at detecting. But he is also definitively categorised as a vigilante. One of the opening scenes is somebody being watched from across the street. And eventually you realise, oh, it's the mayor played by Henry Jones and his family. And I was watching this and I was thinking, now, is this Batman or is this a villain? And as it turns out, it's the villain. But not long after this opening scene of voyeurism, we have almost exactly the same approach to an observation post from Batman and these are shot in almost exactly the same ways. The way that Paul Dano, the Riddler, watches somebody and the way that Batman watches somebody is very, very similar. Robert Pattinson writes in journals and these come across kind of like 
taxi driver or Rorschach from The Watchman, which is kind of the same thing. I mean, it, it, these journal entries could have been written by Paul Schrader. You know, the city is corrupt, the world is dirty, I need to clean the city, I am vengeance. And later we see that Paul Dano has done pretty much the same thing. There are lots and lots of journals that he has written in, sometimes nonsensically, but he's written in them. Very, very similar to the kind of things that Kevin Spacey was getting up to in Seven in writing his journals. And there's also elements of the real-life serial killer and, I, I suppose, also the movie Zodiac in these lengthy ciphers which Paul Dano leaves behind. And there's also sore elements as well, with some of the overly elaborate traps which he occasionally puts his victims in. So this is a film which knows where it's going, knows what its influences is. But at every point, the mirroring between the quote-unquote hero and the quote-unquote villain, Robert Pattinson and Paul Dano, is made very, very clear. These are basically two sides of the same coin. They both have vengeance on their mind, and eventually that word vengeance has a great deal of meaning for both sides of this. And it actually kind of connects to another film which is tangentially connected to the DC universe, Joaquin Phoenix's Joker film. I think there are strong parallels between Joker and this film the Batman, even though they are not directly connected canonically, but their attitude, their approach, their aesthetic is very, very similar. And some of the ideas which are raised are also very, very similar, with the idea of spreading your message and having acolytes almost being part of the mix. That is definitely a strong aspect of the Batman, and particularly since the Batman is set in the present day and not like in the 80s like Joker was, social media becomes very, very important. And that is clearly something that Matt Reeves is trying to say as writer-director, is the communal aspects. I mean, the online vigilantism, which we have seen so much of, you know, with armchair detectives actually solving real-life cases. And that has become such a, a strong part of this. And that is put forward in this film. But at every point, the direct and strong parallels between the Batman and the Riddler, Robert Pattinson and Paul Dano, are made clear. Certain scenes are exact mirrors of each other, certain attitudes are exact mirrors of each other. And this is an endemically corrupt city. I mean, even the news reports, I mean, they don't have any standards and practices at all. I mean, some of the horrific things which Paul Dano the Riddler is putting out there are just broadcast on the nightly news. And you can say these images are disturbing all you want, but you don't actually need to show them, yet the TV stations do. And I think that's a symptom of the wider problems in Gotham City that this politician, Jamie Lawson, is trying to put forward. I mean, you know, a Latina grassroots candidate fighting against a white male incumbent and actually getting somewhere. I mean, clearly modelled on AOC. And yeah, it, it's got all those things to it. I mean, I think this is actually 
a really, really good Batman. I think this is a story which does focus on those vigilante aspects. I mean, it does ask what is the psychological toll of being the Batman. I mean, this started out in the Nolan Dark Knight trilogy, but that was one of the things that came up during the course of that trilogy. Here it is the starting point. Here it is the focus of the entire movie, is the psychological toll, the psychological cost of being the Batman. What does it take to become vengeance at the exclusion of everything else? And it's a major plot point by the end of the film that Bruce Wayne, the billionaire, has been letting things slide because all he cares about is being the Batman. So when there's nobody with a hand on the tiller, it gets put into different directions. And yeah, it's it's all about the toll. It's all about the cost of being the Batman. And I think that is the absolute focus of the film. And I think it's done very, very well. And that is a, a different angle, a different take on the Batman character than I've seen. And I think Matt Reeves did an excellent job of writing and directing. And I think Robert Patterson actually did a really, really good job of acting it as well. And his love-hate relationship with Zoe Kravitz. I mean, basically, they're on the same side, but Zoe Kravitz has different goals, different agendas, and different methods, and is much more likely to actually commit crimes, and is much more willing to kill people than Robert Pattinson is. But they're basically on the same side, but they have slightly different approaches to what they're trying to do. And... I think that is rather interesting, and actually also similarly to Joker, there's some revelations about Selina Kyle's backstory, which is an interesting new wrinkle to the Batman mythos, but in this particular circumstance, actually works remarkably well. So yeah, all around, I think this is an excellent Batman movie. I mean, I think for many people, the epitome will still be The Dark Knight. And yes, that is a fantastic film. But admittedly, having only seen it the once, I think there's a good chance that, for me personally, The Batman might take over as my favourite film starring Batman. I think it's excellent, and its attitudes and its angles jibe very well with my own personal tastes. So, why not? I did like The Batman, and it's one of those things that you've almost certainly seen it by now if you're planning to do, if not seen it multiple times. But for what it's worth, I do think The Batman is good, and for me, it is a yay. Home movies. CryptoZoo is an independent animation from America which is mostly been made available on Mubi.com, but has been released onto certain streaming platforms. You can find this on iTunes. And it is written and directed by Dash Shaw, who is mostly known as a strip cartoonist. But he does have one animated feature under his belt, which I actually really, really liked. My entire high school sinking into the sea in 2017 was a film adaptation of one of his graphic novels and was 
a chaotically exuberant maelstrom of absurdity, surrealism, bold colours, strange art choices, blending of different kinds of animation style. I really, really liked my entire high school sinking into the sea. So that made me a little curious about CryptoZoo, but having seen the trailer for it, it looked a little bit more of a straightforward and more linear narrative, and that I don't think is Dash Shaw's wheelhouse. But it was on the eligible list of animated features for this Oscar cycle, and I did have the ability to watch it, so I did. And this film starts in the hippie era, I mean, late 1960s, early 1970s, where a young couple go off together into the woods to get naked, get stoned and have sex. And after spending some time together, the man, voiced by Michael Cera, sees a giant fence in the woods and, being a hippie type, says, Ooh, I bet this is a secret military installation. Maybe we should break in and find out what's going on. So they climb the fence, and Michael Cera, or the man voiced by Michael Cera, is immediately gored to death by a unicorn. After which, his partner, voiced by Louisa Krause, kills the unicorn in vengeance. And it turns out that they have stumbled into the Crypto Zoo. A place where cryptids, you know, mythical creatures, can survive and be protected and be conserved. And the person who runs this crypto zoo is Grace Zabriskie, but Lake Bell is the main agent for the crypto zoo, travelling all over the world, trying to find these cryptids, trying to find these mystical, mythical creatures, and bring them home so they can be protected and preserved albeit in what is essentially a theme park. So Lake Bell has a mission to find a particular cryptid, a Japanese cryptid called a Baku, which eats dreams, and she first encountered when she was an army brat on Okinawa. So she desperately wants to find and protect and preserve the Baku, and along the way has occasional assistance and or antagonism with various cryptids a gorgon played by the greek actress angeliki papulia i think it was nicer a greek actress playing a gorgon and angeliki papulia is the lead of dogtooth back in the day she is basically lake bell's assistant and peter stormar plays a fawn who is sometimes a friend sometimes an enemy but always, always horny, as fawns often are. And trying to also find and capture the Baku is a military contractor, voiced by Thomas J. Ryan, who wants to use this Baku for military purposes and exploit the animals in that way. So can these cryptids, these mystical creatures, be protected? Do they need protecting in the first place? And how will the fate of cryptids, and particularly this Baku, play out? So I think this is a film with a lot of different themes. I think 
largely it's about the corruption of idealism, the idea that, yes, we can preserve these cryptids, but we need to put them on display. It's the eternal conflict of zoos, particularly in the modern day. The conflict between conservation versus exhibition. You know, yes, we are helping to protect and preserve these creatures, but they are entertainment. We are putting them on display. And how much entertainment are we willing to wring out of this? And the crypto zoo, as it is laid out, it's basically a theme park. It's really, really cheesy. You know, with little keychains and models of all the cryptids and you know regularly scheduled performance from you know cryptids who are that way inclined it is tacky and the thing is that lake bell admits it's tacky but in her mind we need to make this minor step back you know putting these cryptids on display in order to make a great leap forward and hopefully eventually it will just be normalized i mean the Tolerance and civil rights for minorities is another thing which is a strong feature of this film. And I think it's actually dealt with really interestingly, I mean, because there are no easy answers. I mean, Lake Bell is somewhat ambivalent about having to put these cryptids on display. But Angelique Papulia, who, let's not forget, is a cryptid herself, is very, very ambivalent about performatively staying in this zoo and there are some genuine conversations to be had on those fronts and i think it's really interesting and particularly setting it in the hippie era basically this scene opens with a, a sex scene with two completely naked albeit drawn people just going into the woods and having sex with each other and getting stoned and you know the guy voiced by michael sarah has got the full beard and through context we quickly realize oh these are hippies from the Vietnam protest era. It almost reminded me of the illustrations from the old Joy of Sex manual. I don't know how many people have still seen those, but I remember seeing those in passing when I was younger. But yeah, it's very much in the hippie era, in the dawning of an approach to life that was more inclusive. And I find it really interesting that. The reason that the military, as represented by Thomas J. Ryan, wants this particular cryptid, this Baku, a little pig-looking thing with an elephant trunk who just latches its trunk onto your mind and steals your dreams. And the reason the military want that is to steal the dreams of the hippies, steal the dreams of the protesters, because if they don't dream, they can't continue the counterculture. And I found that a little bit pretentious, but I guess it's something of a good idea. But it is definitely a film that deals with those hippie aesthetics, those hippie ideals, the counterculture really working. And eventually we have a tarot reader voiced by Zoe Kazan comes into the mix, and she has very new age attitudes as well. and her perspective on how to deal with these cryptids and particularly this dream stealing or dream eating Baku is really, really interesting. So yeah, I mean there's 
good stuff here. The way things are strung together it is nicely done, you know, going from A to B. I mean, there's a sequence which takes place in a club, and the club is so loud that we barely hear the audio from what the people are talking, but there's subtitles. thought that was a nice touch. But it does present what I think is possibly the biggest issue I have with CryptoZip, and that is the fact it is a little bit too linear. This has been done in a deliberately naive, a deliberately simplistic way. I think it is crude in both art style and technique, and deliberately so. It's trying for that low rent, low budget, independent approach, which in my entire high school sinking into the sea did work because that was just such a chaotic maelstrom of stuff. I mean, just throwing everything in together and you, you're just going along for this visual feast. But here, CryptoZoo has such a strong aesthetic behind it, such strong ideals behind it. It's definitely trying to get a message across. And because of that, the narrative is a little bit linear and it is trying to get these ideas across by having a somewhat standardised art style. And yes, by the end, I mean, when, you know, inevitably the crypto zoo comes under attack and you know, all hell breaks loose, there are different art styles which come in. But for the majority of it, it is this deliberately crude, this deliberately simplistic style and it doesn't quite work for me i think if you're going to do this deliberately in a simplistic way it almost comes across as flash animation if you are going to do that then throw everything at it so you just go completely bizarre completely off the wall i mean it doesn't need to be as realistic as crypto zoo ended up being at least before the end so yeah, I think, ultimately, I think this was a little bit too straight-laced. I think the chaos of my entire high school sinking into the sea was a brilliant way of presenting that narrative. But here, I think it loses its way a little bit. I think it's trying to get its point across too strongly, and the fact that it has a point in the first place is perhaps an issue in and of itself. But yeah, I didn't like CryptoZoo as much as I liked my entire high school sinking into the sea, but I do basically think it's worth it. I mean, if you accept the fact that this is very crude animation, and deliberately so, it's got a little bit of a heavy-handed message in it. If you accept that, I think you'll have a decent enough time watching CryptoZoo. It is currently available through Mubi.com, and you can find it on certain streaming platforms like iTunes. And for me, CryptoZoo is a pretty solid meh. The other Oscar Beatty film which I watched this week and is available through streaming platforms is Sean Penn's latest film, Flag Day which premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 2021 to honestly not particularly great reviews, but since it did get into Cannes and it is directed by a name like Sean Penn, it did end up on the gold derby lists of Oscar potential. 
And Sean Penn hasn't really made many films over recent years. I mean, he's, I think, pretty much more of a director than an actor nowadays, even though he did appear in Licorice Pizza in a nice little cameo. But this is his first film for five years and is an opportunity to showcase the talents of his daughter, Dylan Penn. And indeed, Dylan's brother, Hopper Pan, also plays his son in the film. So it was really a family affair. It would have been really interesting if Robin Wright had actually played their mother, but I mean, I really don't know what the relationship is between Sean Penn and Robin Wright anymore. But yeah, this was definitely a family affair. And I think that's perhaps the most interesting aspect of it. I mean, this is based on a memoir of a very problematic father. And the fact that Sean Penn decided to make this type of film with his children in it, I think perhaps says a lot. Sean Penn is recently separated from his third wife after only a year. And his third wife is about the same age as his daughter, Dylan Pan. So, yeah, making a film about a problematic father with your daughter is possibly telling. But anyway, this film, Flag Day, is based on the memoir Flim Flam Man by Jennifer Vogel, who grew up with a very problematic, distant father who was often off doing schemes and eventually was sent to jail for armed robbery before becoming one of the bigger counterfeiters in US history. And all the while having this difficult relationship with his daughter. Before Jennifer Vogel, as played by Dylan Penn, eventually grew up to become a journalist and writer of this memoir. But this deals with Jennifer Vogel coming to the gradual realisation of just how problematic her father is and the complicated relationship she has with her father. And she wrote it all in this memoir, and eventually it has been made into this film. And I think I can say a lot about Flag Day that I said recently about the George Clooney Ben Affleck film The Tender Bar, which was also one of these adaptations of a coming-of-age memoir. In so much as I'm really not sure why this type of film exists, why this genre of writing is so popular. I mean, it's a recurring gag in the film The Tender Bar, publishing is moving towards memoir, and by God it is. I mean, we've had so many of them recently. I mean, uh, A Journal for Jordan is another recent example. And I just don't get it. I mean, yes, Jennifer Vogel, as played by Dylan Penn in this film, had a very problematic, arguably a traumatic childhood, and she came through it and she survived, and she has built a very nice life for herself by all accounts. That's great. Do we need to see it as an audience? And I'm really not sure we do. I mean, I do not know if this is just a personal tick of mine or if this is a truism of the wider world, but this kind of memoir just does very little for me. And 
I I just don't know why we're supposed to pay attention to this. And particularly when Sean Pan has decided to shoot this in a very specific way. This film is shot on 16mm film, which gives it a very specific look. I mean, it evokes those grand director-led movies of the 1970s. But here, I don't think it has any great effect. I mean, we have all these halcyon, mildly out-of-focus, 16mm, and occasionally even 8mm pieces of footage of Sean Penn and his children as they gradually grow up. And we have a pervasive voiceover from Dylan Penn, which I'm assuming is prose from the original Jennifer Vogel memoir, and having this very artistic, very emotional, somewhat empathetic and sympathetic viewpoint on her father which is completely at odds with the actual text of the film as presented in the film i mean sean pan is a man who's always got schemes on the go i mean eventually he gets himself into armed robbery and counterfeiting but he's always got schemes on the go he's always just the wrong side of the law and he never ever gives his daughter or his family or anybody else, I mean, his long-suffering and eventually alcoholic wife, Catherine Winnick, they are never, ever given a straight answer. Even when directly confronted, when directly asked questions, he is incapable of honesty. It's not even an option for him to be straight with his daughter, even when confronted with a direct question from an increasingly frustrated and angry daughter. He is incapable of doing that. So, with this selfish, self-centred person who doesn't seem to be a good father or husband, is completely off in his own world, has his own ideas as to how the world should run and the world should run about him he's not a good guy and yet we have these voiceovers saying how good a guy he is and talking about how memory is great and you know, the the perfect moments with my father were the halcyon moments of my youth and, and all this kind of stuff and the film opens with you know a high-speed car chase across uh, i believe minnesota in the early 1990s and very soon afterwards Dylan Penn has been given the personal effects of her father Sean Penn by Regina King in a small role in this film so yeah we know that this is not going to end well and yet it plays out like this is just oh my roguish father but at a certain point roguish charm is just deception and we reached that point long before the end of the film and the somewhat tragic end of Sean Pan. So, why are we making this film? It is clear that the style is what Sean Pan was after. I mean, having this 16mm halcyon, nostalgic approach to the material, having a story about a daughter dealing with her problematic father 
and you know, I mean, the, the psychology of that in and of itself is fascinating for Sean Penn, the person. But what are we doing here? I mean, it's not even like this story has a satisfying enough conclusion. There's so little resolved, which you can probably get away with in a memoir, in a book, where you can go into more detail and go into the more, more personal thought processes of Jennifer Vogel. But in a film, there's really, really not enough resolution to the relationship between Sean Penn and Dylan Penn. So why? And that's ultimately what I say about Flag Day. Why? It's a memoir. I don't really see the need to make films of these types of memoirs, yet we keep on making them. So what's the point? I mean, I can't say I was really impressed by Flag Day. I find it notable that it didn't get any type of cinematic release here in the UK, despite playing at the Cannes Film Festival. It's that kind of film which is just going to vanish into the ether. I mean, perhaps only notable for the fact that this could well be a breakout role for Dylan Penn. I think she's actually pretty good in this, even though it's got such heightened melodrama that some of the best acting in Dylan Penn is her screeching at the top of her lungs at her disinterested mother so yeah I, I think it might be a footnote in the career of dylan pan you know saying this was the moment where she actually became an actress but other than that there's nothing here there really is nothing here i, I don't really think it's worth it i certainly don't think it's worth paying for i mean when it comes on television or whatever you might want to check it out but other than that i think this is one you can safely skip so for me Flag Day, available through various streaming platforms, is a really, really low meh. Netflix and chill. Child of Kamiari Month is an anime available on Netflix, directed by Takana Shirai. This is her first feature as director, though she has been gradually working her way up the totem pole of animation departments in Japan for many years, doing grunt work animation on things like Wolf Children and The Tale of the Princess Kaguya. But now she has directed her own movie, which has ended up on Netflix, and follows the story of a 12-year-old girl called Kana, who used to be a talented runner and used to love to run, but she ran with her mother. And her mother, about a year ago, died, and she has lost her passion for running. But one day she has a mystical encounter, and it is revealed that her mother was an Idatan, a kind of demigod slash supernatural spirit slash god something, but a very talented runner, basically the spirit of running, or at least descended from the spirit of running. And one of her jobs as the Idatan, or an Idatan, was to go around Japan and pick up bounties for the Feast of the Gods, which takes place every year in Kamiari Month in Izumo in the southwest of Japan. Now, the Izumo Taishi Shrine is the oldest Buddhist shrine in Japan, and presumably this is sort of like well known in Japan. So, 
the Edatan or An Edatan is tasked with collecting all the local delicacies from all the regions of Japan and taking it to this ancient shrine. And now that Kana's mother is dead, it has fallen on Kana to take up this role. But she's a 12-year-old girl, she's grief-stricken, she's guilt-ridden, she blames herself for her mother's death, as is so often the case with a 12-year-old girl. So can she complete this mission accompanied by a mystical rabbit and a demon boy who wants to take her job as the person who runs and collects all this bounty? So will this mismatched group of people make it to this ancient shrine in time for the God's Feast? And will Kana possibly have the opportunity to see her mother, who has passed through to the other side in the land of the gods? I have become an increasing fan of anime. I mean, when... I have an opportunity to see it, and it's not a direct connection to a TV show, which is so often the case. I mean, there's uh, another special screening next week at the Odeon, but it's a prequel to an already existing anime TV show, so I think I'm going to skip that one. But when it stands alone, and particularly when it's on Netflix like this one was, and I have you know, no excuse not to click the button and watch it, I have become an increasing fan of anime. But this was one of those situations where very quickly I realised that this was probably not going to be the film for me. The protagonists of these anime films, and indeed anime TV shows, are so often adolescents or teenagers. Knowing what the market is for the people who generally consume this kind of material, the protagonists are often teenagers, and that's fine. I can get along with that. I mean, I'm you know, way, way past being a teenager, but I can still get back into that mindset. You know, I can still remember back into the dim and distant past when I was a teenager. So, I mean, I like that kind of adventure, melodrama, romance, you know, the blending, which is so often the case in anime. But with this film, the protagonist is 12 years old. She specifically says she's a sixth grader at a certain point in this film. And that can go either way. I mean, that is you know the cusp, really, between childhood and teenagerhood. And you can still have you know, a quote-unquote teen attitude with a 12-year-old protagonist. But that's not what Child of Kamiari Mouth does. This is an anime which, in my mind, definitively fits into the child protagonist, not the adolescent or teenage protagonist. This is the responses, this is the attitudes of a child to this situation, and the plot of the film plays out as such. This is somebody who is so desperate with the possibility of seeing her mother. You know, if I complete this mission, if I make it to this ancient shrine, I will possibly be able to see my mother on the other side, you know, the 
the land of the gods. And she is so determined that this is what she does. She doesn't actually listen to this mystical rabbit, this bunny sidekick. I mean, so we as an audience know that it's probably not going to happen, but she just hasn't heard it. She didn't pay attention to the rabbit when you know, the rules, the setting was laid out. She's also incredibly guilt-ridden about her mother's death. She blames herself for her mother's death, and it's absolutely not her fault. I mean, it was just one of those things. I mean, it's never specifically stated, but it looks like some kind of brain aneurysm or something. She just dropped down dead, but Kano blames herself for her mother's death, and doing this thing that her mother did, you know, doing this running all over Japan in order to get this chiso, the, these bounties for the feast. I mean, it really, really reminded me of the comic book Asterix and the Banquet. I mean, I'm not sure how much of a cultural footprint Asterix still has, but when I was a kid, I used to love reading Asterix books, and one of them is Asterix and the Banquet, where he has to go all the way around France and pick up regional delicacies from France and prove to the dastardly Romans that you know Gauls are still worth something. And it was such a strong reminder of Asterix and the Banquet for this, collecting all these local delicacies for this feast. But the fact that she is doing it just as her mother once did, it's a connection. I mean, it's trying to find the love for running again. I mean, she is a talented runner, or at least was a talented runner, but she doesn't have the passion for it anymore. She specifically says at one point, the only reason I'm doing this is to see my mother again. If this demon boy wants to take over this role, I'm perfectly willing to give it to him, even though in the grand scheme of things it's probably not a good idea, but if he wants to do it, so be it. I don't care. And this actually becomes a plot point. And you know, the melodrama, the emotional turmoil, it's all from a childlike perspective. It is all the attitudes and the opinions of a 12-year-old. And I think they lay it on a little thick. I think this is a film which, in my mind, definitely fits into the child attitudes, the kid-friendly attitudes, which aren't necessarily carried over into great pieces of animated cinema. Towards the end of the film, there's also a little bit of Buddhist proselytizing, you know, talking about Buddhist aesthetics and Buddhist ideals, and fighting against the evils of the world. I mean, that's uh, something I didn't necessarily expect from this film. So, yeah, Child of Kamiari Month is a kid friendly film with not a great deal of incident, not a great deal of interest. So much of this film is done in montages. We actually interact with so many of these demigods at these shrines. I mean, she has to go to all these shrines and pick up these bounties, this chiso. But we actually interact with so few of these shrine guardians that it's basically in a lot of places, a giant montage. And that actually isn't all that interesting. So, yeah, it's 
a pretty bland, pretty standard film, which doesn't really break out of the confines which a kid-friendly anime would suggest. So, I mean, there's nothing particularly wrong with it, but I can't say this is a masterpiece or something you need to seek out. So for me, Child of Kamiari Month, the anime available on Netflix, is a pretty low meh. Coming attractions. It looks like the major studios are still running and hiding from the Batman, so there are no major releases cinematically this week. Only a handful of more art house films. The first of which, the Finnish film Master Chang, I have already seen. I saw this a couple of weeks ago in a preview screening. It's about a Chinese man who has recently lost his wife and travels to the remote north of Finland with his 10, 11-year-old son to try and reconnect with a Finnish man he met in his past and he feels he owes a debt to. But once he gets there, nobody knows what the hell he's talking about. So this Chinese man, who happens to be a master chef, at a loose end starts cooking amazing Chinese food in this tiny little diner within the Arctic Circle, or very close to the Arctic Circle, and warming the hearts of the locals. And, yeah, it's a pretty simple, yet quite charming film. I mean, I think it's a nice film. And you might well take that as a pejorative, but I think that's the best way to describe Master Chang. But a full review in next week's episode. Alongside a review of the Austrian film Great Freedom, which has ended up on the 15 film long list for International Feature Oscar, but did not get selected. It stars Franz Rogowski, the brilliant German actor from Victoria and Transit and various other things, but in this case, he plays a young man in 1960s, I think, Germany, who is repeatedly sent to prison for homosexuality, which is illegal in post-war Germany. And over the course of these sentences, he forms a close bond with his cellmate. So this is an LGBT film showing the difficulties of being queer in a particular time and place. And Franz Rogowski is an excellent actor. So, yeah, I'm really intrigued by this. I'm glad I kept a ticket off my list legally, because I do need to watch it for my international feature Oscar considerations. And it is available cinematically this week. As is another mildly Oscar Beatty film, or at least the film which showed up on the Gold Derby lists of Oscar potential, Red Rocket, which is the latest film from Sean Baker, the guy who did Tangerine and The Florida Project. In this case, it stars Simon Rex as a former porn star who goes back to his tiny Texas town trying to figure out what to do next with his life and getting on the nerves of everybody around him and potentially finding a new porn starlet working in the local donut shop. So can he get his shit together? Can he get his life together? 
what is the retirement plan for former porn stars. So, yeah, that could be kind of interesting, particularly since it is directed by Sean Baker and it is available cinematically next week. But perhaps the biggest release of this forthcoming week is the new Pixar film, Turning Red. And in common with the last couple of Pixar films, this is unfortunately being released directly onto Disney+, Plus, which is a trend I'm really, really struggling with. But regardless, it is going to be available on Disney+, Plus, and I'm going to have to pirate it because I'm just not going to buy Disney+. Plus. I'm not going to give even more money to that mega-rich behemoth. But anyway, Turning Red is the latest Pixar movie. It's about a 13-ish-year-old Chinese girl who, on the cusp of puberty, realises that whenever she gets overly emotional, she turns into a giant red panda. And being a 13-year-old girl, she gets emotional quite a lot. So how are you going to still fit in to your life and your school when you repeatedly turn into a gigantic red panda so yeah that sounds kind of cute and that is available on disney plus this week perhaps the other reasonably big release out this week alongside turning red on streaming services is a film on netflix called the adam project which stars ryan reynolds and reteams him with the director of free guy sean levy to tell the tale of a time-travelling space pilot who goes back in time to interact with his younger self and also goes further back in time to have conversations with his long-dead father. So, a time-travel story dealing with family trauma and adventure and all that kind of stuff looks like it could be family-friendly fun. And since for a couple of the cinematic films I'm going to be watching this week, I will need to go over to Bristol, this does mean that I will be doing my standard thing, or my practice which has become standard, of watching some foreign language films on Netflix on the bus ride over, since it's a good way of getting stuff ticked off the list when you don't really have to hear too much over the noise of the bus. So, top of that particular list is the Polish film from last week, My Wonderful Life, with Agata Buzek trying to keep the fact she's having an affair hidden from her large family, and also the German teen supernatural film The Privilege, with a group of German high schoolers in a prestigious high school uncovering some dark conspiracies. So. Both of those look kind of fun, and I'll probably be watching those on the bus ride over to Bristol. And I also have a string of streaming films which have been added to the list. It's always a dangerous thing to start looking around online. I mean, as I was doing all the research on the films I felt I needed to tick off my Oscar lists, I came across quite a few other films. This all started when I realised that the Belgian film Playground, which got long-listed for the International Feature Oscar, did not win the Magritte Award, the Belgian Oscars. 
And when I looked into it, I realised that the Belgian film that did win the Magritte Award has already been released legally on streaming platforms in the UK. It's called Madly in Life, and it's a comedy dealing with dementia, or at least that seems to be the case. A young couple are trying to have a baby, but at the same time this is going on, the man's mother starts showing the early signs of dementia. And suddenly, as they're trying to make a baby, they essentially have to look after a baby in the form of the mentally impaired mother, and comedy hijinks ensue, or at least that seems to be the case. So, yeah, I'm intrigued that this is a film that not only beat Playground, which I did kind of like, but it also beat Jumbo, which was one of my top 10 films of last year. So if this was considered the best film from Belgium last year and I have the legal opportunity to watch it, then why not? I will be at some point checking out the film Madly in Life. There's also a film from Laos, which I've come across. Laos is one of those countries where the entire film industry is essentially one person. It's a woman called Mati Doe. This is her second feature. Her first feature, Dearest Sister, got into a lot of film festivals, including the London Film Festival. And this second film, The Long Walk, is also a interesting and apparently supernatural thriller set in Laos about a reclusive man in his 50s who realises that he is connected to the past or can time travel or something. I mean, either he's time travelling or he's seeing ghosts, but either way, it is connected with a traumatic death he witnessed when he was a child. I mean, I'm not exactly sure of the details, but looking at the trailer, it looks atmospheric and creepy, and the opportunity to watch a film from a country like Laos is probably too good to pass up. So I do want to check out The Long Walk. And there's also a film I've come across from Chile called Forgotten Roads, which has a little bit in common with last year's French film, Two of Us, in which a recently widowed woman in Chile moves in with her daughter and starts a friendship with the lady next door and gradually as this relationship develops realizations come oh that's why i wasn't happy with my husband or at least you know that seems to be the case but obviously the daughter who she is living with has her own opinions on this set of circumstances so yeah forgotten road does look pretty cool coming from chile there's also a micro micro budget film called black jade which is so low budget that it doesn't appear to be on all the streaming services you would expect. It looks like it's just two people in a flat together, albeit one of them's playing twin sisters. I mean, basically, a twin sister shows up at her sister's house and realises that her quote-unquote writer husband is a little bit crazy, a little bit paranoid. And it looks like kind of dream sequences, that kind of thing but done on an absolute shoestring budget. And I am intrigued by this kind of filmmaking. I mean, it usually doesn't 
end up any good. I mean, I've been bitten so many times when I've watched this kind of micro-budget film, but I keep pursuing it. I keep wanting to find that gem, that diamond in the rough. And Black Jade looks like it might be that kind of film, albeit it will probably end up being a complete washout. But yeah, it's a little bit similar to the British film Help, which I added to the list a couple of weeks ago. But yes, Black Jade has ended up on the list, but it's not going to be a high priority by any stretch of the imagination. And the last streaming film I want to add to the list is a film which I believe is being released this week onto Amazon Prime Video. It's called The Postcard Killings, and it's based on a novel by James Patterson, or at least a ghost-written novel which James Patterson has put his name on, which is his increasing pattern over recent years. But this is a film starring Jeffrey Dean Morgan as a New York cop whose daughter, whilst on her honeymoon in Europe, is brutally murdered and displayed in a very elaborate way. Basically, this is the kind of lurid, gothic police procedural in the same vein as something like Seven which never actually happens in real life, but is very over-the-top, very Grand Guignol, that kind of thing. And judged by the trailer, it's also very, very gory. So, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily be interested in this. I mean, I, I do on occasion like that kind of lurid crime movie, police procedural movie, particularly when it's somewhat associated with James Patterson. But what really, really makes me fascinated by this film is it is directed by Danis Tanovich, who has won an Oscar for a foreign language Oscar, as it still was then, and been nominated for more. I mean, he is a highly respected Bosnian director, a great art house director in the European tradition, and he's making this lurid, gory crime movie. And why? I mean, that just makes me fascinated at the fact that it's from Danis Tanovich. So, yeah, the postcard killings has been added to the list for curiosity value, if nothing else. So, yeah, a lot of stuff has been added to the list this week, but my main priority remains trying to tick off all the films I need to before I commit myself to my Oscar preview shows. I'm very, very close to watching all the films I want to. I've found almost all the films I feel the need to watch through extra legal means. There's a couple of stragglers which I'm still frustratingly not being able to find. But my Oscar preview videos will be coming hopefully pretty soon. I've ticked off enough that I think I can start recording pretty quickly. So that's going to be my priority over the next week or so, but in the next episode, at the very least, we will have the cinematic films Master Chang, Great Freedom and Red Rocket. And before I leave you, a reminder that there were two yays in this particular episode, both of them at the cinema and with very, very different attitudes. First, we have Ali and Ava, which is a really fascinating look at a complicated situation, a romance between two very mismatched people and the societal reaction to such a match. 
but it's really really nice i mean i believe the relationship i think it's a microcosm of modern british working class society and i really did like ali and ava and i also liked the batman a very very different film making this film specifically about the best detective in the world who is also a vigilante and is disturbingly similar to quote-unquote criminals like the Riddler and Catwoman, making those parallels direct and distinct and observable in the film, I think was a really, really fascinating direction to take it in. And Robert Pattinson, under the direction of Matt Reeves, I think does it very, very well. So, yeah, I think The Batman, maybe after I've had a little longer to marinate on it, I think I might end up thinking it is the best Batman movie I've ever seen even over the dark night. So, yeah, I think that's high praise indeed, and it is a definite yay. So, that's the end of the show, and all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay, Nay, or Mare, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. Ah!